my name is Mina. Um, Caleb likes to introduce me as his better half, and I'm one of the campus pastors here. Uh, thank you, Ted, for reading uh, the scripture for us today. Uh, I wanted to kind of save my energy, so I asked him last minute, so thank you, Ted. <laughs> Uh, for reading. Um, I want to just try to give a little bit of introduction on this book, Philemon. And Philemon is one of uh, Paul's shortest letters. It's only 25 verses. And the letter is written to Philemon, a Gentile believer. And ha- he's one of uh, Paul's numerous co-workers in the ministry. Okay, He was someone that Paul considered a dear and trusted friend. And it's believed that Philemon was wealthy and was a Christian slave owner. Okay, Philemon, he lives in Colossae, and although Apostle Paul had yet to visit Colossae, there was a strong bond of friendship between the two. During the time of the letter, Paul was imprisoned, and so the letter was carried by Tychicus and Philemon's slave Onesimus. And Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus, Okay, who's his runaway slave and is trying to mend their relationship? Okay, so essentially, Onesimus is the wronged party, is coming to his old master with the letter of appeal from Paul, who's speaking about him. Okay, he's trying to kind of connect the estranged relationship. I'm sure it's quite awkward. Um, there seems to be a good agreement that Tychicus and Onesimus brought not just Philemon's letter from Paul, because he lived in Colossae, but also the letter to the Colossians. And some scholars say that they also carried another letter to the Ephesians, but there's a little bit of disagreement about that, okay? So these people are coming all the way from Rome, uh, these letters from Paul's very heart, talking to the Colossians, and then now they're presenting it to Philemon, the Gentile believer. Okay, so we're going to go read through Philemon, so I'd like to ask you to uh, keep your Bibles open, or you can follow along in your Bible apps, Uh, but we'll be going through verse by verse. Okay, we'll start with uh, verse 1, or you can also uh, look on the screen as well. Okay, I'll start from verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Okay, so here we see that it's a typical greeting where uh, the letter is coming from Apostle Paul. But also in this verse, we see that Timothy is added on there. And often what Paul does is he likes to include part of his team. It's like, here I am and here's my team. But as we read the the letter, we're going to see that the primary author is Paul and he's speaking from the heart. Okay, uh, some background is there's 13 letters that Paul wrote to different churches Uh, But Philemon's letter is unique because it's the only letter that's addressed to one person. Okay, this is Philemon. And out of the 13 letters, nine of them have a greeting where Paul refers to himself as an apostle. Okay, so this is one of the only letters where he's only referring to himself as a prisoner in Christ. Okay, so usually he's like, hey man, I'm an apostle. I'm a mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. Okay, I have authority to command you and speak into your life. That's usually the greeting because a lot of the things that he's trying to mention is our corrections and things that need to be fixed. Okay, but in this letter, he only refers to himself as a prisoner in Christ, okay, because he's in, in prison in Rome. Okay, so he's addressing this letter 
more as a friend rather than from his apostleship. Okay, let's go to verse 2. And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Okay, so here we see that Aphia is likely Philemon's wife. Okay, and at the time, slaves fell under the wife's supervision. Okay, so Paul's trying to address this issue of this runaway slave. So this is not just going to affect Philemon, but she's the one that was technically in authority over the runaway slave. Okay, so she played a crucial role in carrying out Paul's desires for this slave Onesimus. Okay, in the next part, Archippus, our fellow soldier, uh, some scholars say that he was Aphia and Philemon's son. Okay, but many believe him to be the leader who took over Apophras, okay, which we see at the later end of the book, who was the pastor of the church at the time. Okay, so this is a, the key leader of the house church. It says in Colossians 4.17, Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Okay, so Paul's not just addressing it to Philemon. He's including his wife, the leader, and also the house churches. Okay, because Archippus as the leader, he would be key in leading the church into Paul's instructions. Okay, although the letter is addressed to Philemon as the primary addressee, okay, Paul's mentioning these other parties because now it's not just about private conversation, but it's becoming a public appeal. Okay, so back then when letters were received, they were read out loud. And so Paul's addressing the entire house church that's meeting in Philemon's house at the time. So this letter is going to be read out loud. Okay, Philemon's going to be there. The church is going to be there. And Onesimus is going to be there. Okay, don't you think that's so awkward? <laughs> they have, On- Onesimus and Philemon have this estranged relationship. Okay, and then this letter is going to be read out loud about their estranged relationship in front of the entire house church. I was like thinking, I was like, oh, that's like, I wouldn't want to be there. Okay, that would be so, so awkward. Okay, but as custom hold, these letters would be out loud, read out loud, and he's uh, addressing these four different parties. Okay, the letter was in private, and it reveals the important bond between a community of believers through common faith in Christ. So I think that this is such a relevant teaching because Christians coming from a Western background were very like individualistic. We're like, it's me and God, and it's my private faith, which we need because we need a strong foundation uh, with God in our relationship. Okay, but oftentimes private business is a matter for the believing community since we belong to one another in common faith. Okay, let's go to uh, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is just a typical end of the greeting from Paul. Okay, so the next portion of the letter, verses 4 through 7, Paul is being tactful. Okay, he's thanking Philemon and also praying for him. Okay, so let's go to verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward Jesus Christ and for all the saints. Okay, so these two verses, 
He's thanking Paul. He's just, sorry, he's thanking Philemon. Okay, Paul's describing his friend as one, he's a man of love. Two, he's a man of faith, not just towards Jesus and God's people. Okay, Philemon was a man that was practical. He refreshed the saints through words and works. Okay, let's go to verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Okay, so I want you guys to pay attention to the first part of the verse. And I pray that the sharing of your faith. Okay, so here the word sharing is the Greek word koinonia. Okay, this encapsulates a couple things. Okay, koinonia is like, it's partnership, it's fellowship, generosity. It sometimes is used in the Bible as communion. Okay, in other parts of scripture, koinonia is used by talking about fellowship with other believers, like in 1 John. Okay, even sharing finances with those in need in Hebrews 13, or even fellowship with Jesus in 1 Corinthians. It's like, Koinonia is relationship, it's fellowship, it's partnership between the body of Christ. Now this verse in the Aramaic can be translated, may your association, meaning your fellowship, okay, with the believers, okay, this is talking about the people in Philemon's house church, be fruitful in works and in the knowledge of all that you possess in Jesus. Okay, fellowship here is capturing the reality of community. And again, being Christian isn't like a Lone Ranger's journey. When people commit themselves to Christ, they're also committing themselves to a body of believers. It's about covenant relationship. Okay, that's why the enemy loves to attack believers with isolation, with lies and division. Uh, but as a covenant community, we bind ourselves together and become identified with one another so that we can receive both the blessings and the responsibilities of belonging. <laughs> Paul is praying for Philemon here in verse 6 can best be explained by the Aramaic translation that their fellowship with the believers in the house church will be fruitful in works and in the knowledge of Christ. Okay, let's go to, we're having a lot of fun. Uh, let's go to verse 7. Okay, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Okay, so Paul's now setting it up here. He's like, you know, he's pumping it up. He's like, I'm so thankful. I'm praying for you. You're so awesome. Okay, and the next portion of this letter, starting from verse 8, is now Apostle Paul's plea for Onesimus. Okay, so in this portion, we're going to see five strong appeals that Apostle Paul is trying to get out of Philemon in a good way, okay, non-controlling way. Okay, let's go to verse 8. First, it says, accordingly. Okay, he starts with this. So anytime uh, there's some kind of transition word, you want to look at what happens prior. Okay, so this is the first appeal. Paul saying, hey man, you are such a refreshing brother in Christ. Accordingly, please, this is an opportunity for you also to refresh me. Okay, he's like saying, hey, you're like so awesome now. Because of this, here's my favor. Okay, he's giving 
Paul, he's giving Philemon an opportunity to also refresh his heart. Okay, we'll continue. Accordingly, though I am bold in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Okay, he's being very wise here. He's not like, hey man, I'm an apostle. You gotta listen, you gotta command me. Like, oftentimes as parents, it's so easy to be like, obey me, that's what the scripture says. And kind of, you know, command. And there's a time for commanding. Uh, but Paul here, he's using wisdom. Because he doesn't want to command Philemon to do something. He wants love to be the primary motive. So he's saying, you know what? I could command you, but I prefer to appeal to you, my brother, for the sake of love. Now, love compels us to do things that in the natural cannot be explained. Okay, why would you buy these expensive flowers that will wilt and die for your beloved? Because it's love. Okay, my youngest son is tiny, but homie's heavy. He's like two packs of flour, like jammed packed together. And when we go on like, you know, long walks and he's kind of like, a, I'm tired. And I'm always like, okay. And I always carry him and I'm tired. My, my husband's always like, why do you do that? Please put him down. And I'm like, oh, I love him. And I, he's my baby. Love compels us to do these strange things. Okay. So Paul's trying to put inside Philemon, love to be the center and to be the primary motive. He wants, you know, a good leader needs to have wisdom to know when to appeal or when to command. So Apostle Paul, you can see in all the other letters, he has no problems commanding people and telling them what's right. But here he's choosing, my son, Philemon, I appeal to you. Okay, let's go to verse 9, the second part. I... Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Okay, this is Paul's second appeal. He's like, I'm old. <laughs> I'm an old man. And number two, I'm in prison. <laughs> Every time I read this, I laugh out loud. He's like, tactfully, let me remind you, sir, my current predicament. I'm old, but I'm also in prison. By the way, I'm in prison for the gospel. And he's like bringing out his big guns. Okay, before his appeal, he's like, hey, you know, my situation is probably a lot worse than yours. Let's put things in perspective. Okay, let's go to verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Okay, so this is Paul's third appeal. Okay, Onesimus, your slave, has been converted. He's my child. Okay, Paul's like, I shared the gospel, and now he's in the family of God. Come on, Philemon, Onesimus is safe now. Okay, he has a new standing before God, and a new standing before God's people. Okay, now that he's saved, it totally changes things, and Philemon needed to take that into consideration. Okay, let's go to the next verse. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. Doesn't that just sound mean? <laughs> he's like reading this in public. He's like, that guy, he's useless. 
right? But Paul's doing a play on words here. Okay, the name Onesimus means useful. Okay, so he's saying before as a runaway slave he was useless. Okay, but now that he's saved and converted in the family of God, he's finally living up to his name. Okay, he's useful in Christ. Okay, and also we'll learn from the next verses that Onesimus has been very useful and helpful to Paul. Okay, which we'll see in verse 12. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Okay, since Paul was on house arrest, he can't do much. Okay, so there were people that were with Paul to help him, like run errands and get food. And Onesimus proved to be very useful and was serving Paul in this capacity while he was a prisoner. So this is his fourth appeal. Paul saying, hey, Onesimus is your slave, but he's serving me on your behalf. <laughs> Paul wanted to retain his services, but he knew that this runaway slave had a severed relationship with his master. And so although he's living up to his name useful, he knew that there was a wrongdoing that needed to be addressed. Okay, so now he's sending him back. He's saying, he's really useful, but here you go. And I wanted to keep him, but I'm sending him to you. Okay, let's go to verse 14. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Okay, Paul again is trying to persuade him so that his love can be authentic and not coerced, okay, not forced. Okay, let's go to the next verse, verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Okay, this is Paul's last appeal. Okay, he's saying, it's funny because he's like, oh, actually, maybe, perhaps, he was parted for a while. Okay, because in Philemon's eyes, it's like, man, this punk slave ran away. He disobeyed me and he left. But here's Paul suggesting, maybe, perhaps, he left so that you could have him forever as a brother in Christ. In my study Bible, there's a cross-reference in this verse. Okay, so if you have study Bibles, you know how they have all those like weird little italicized letters and stuff? So cross-references are helpful because it lets, it lets the Bible kind of speak for itself. Okay, so there's many different subjects repeated frequently in Scripture. And by using these cross-references, the reader can follow the biblical treatment of the subject without extra commentary. Okay, so here, for perhaps this is why, okay, the cross-reference here is for Genesis 45, 5, and 8. Okay, this is the story of Joseph. Okay, and this particular cross-reference is when Joseph is already in Egypt as like Pharaoh's extended hand, and he has all this authority, and he's reunited with his brothers who threw him in the pit. But he says to his brothers, it was not your sin, but it was God who brought me here. Okay, so it's kind of using the same kind of understanding where as Christians, we have to believe that God's in control of everything, that he's sovereign and the sovereignly behind all events. 
So Paul's suggesting here, hey, maybe this was just God being sovereign. Of all places and all people, they were in Rome, which is far away from their home in Colossae. I met your slave randomly, okay, then brought him to Christ. He's trying to show the connection of God's possible workings and hand workings and sovereignty. So this is his last point. Okay, we go to verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. So he's talking about Philemon. Okay, think of him as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Okay, I want to just take a moment to give a little bit of context about slavery back in the Roman Empire. Okay, it's not the same as like, you know, 17th and 19th century North America. Okay, but in the Roman Empire, estimates suggest that there were 60 million slaves. Okay, this is up to half of the population. Okay, it didn't have to do with race, but basically it was by birth and economic status. Okay, slaves had the ability to save up money and become free. If you look at other of Paul's letters, he kind of urges slaves to do that. Okay, but the sheer number of slaves was so great that the Roman Empire was constantly afraid of slave revolts. Okay, so because of this, the laws were very harsh against slaves, okay, especially against runaway slaves like Onesimus. Okay, so here, slaves were at the mercy of their master's hand. Okay, as Paul is appealing to Philemon, Philemon has the legal power and the right to sentence Onesimus to immediate execution. Okay, by law, and even crucifixion. Okay, so if Philemon was merciful, and he's like, okay, I'm going to let you live, then Onesimus would be branded on his forehead with the letter F for fugitivist. Okay, you know like how they uh, brand cows? I guess that's how they did it back then. Okay, on his forehead, marking him for life. <laughs> so slaves have very little rights. In Jewish culture, they had some rights, but in Roman culture, they had no rights. Okay, so this is the reality of slave and master relationships. So what Paul's trying to do here is, don't think of him as a slave. Think of him as a beloved brother. He's trying to shift Philemon's mindset, because the culture at the time is trying to say, hey, he's your slave and you're his master, rule over him, you know, have these expectations of him. Okay, but just by him saying this, he's going directly against the culture, and he's trying to instill in Philemon's mind, not the world's perspective, but a gospel perspective. He's saying, don't think of him as a slave, but think of him as first and utmost as a beloved brother in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul say, hey, listen, in the kingdom of God, we are all equal. Okay. Jew or Gentile? Okay, back then racism was so intense because the Jewish believers were so like used to just being on their own. But Paul's trying to say, hey, hey, it doesn't matter. No matter the race, Jew or Greek, okay, no matter the fact if you're a slave or free, 
Okay, if you're male or female, who females also didn't have many rights back then either, it doesn't matter, you're all one in Christ Jesus. In God's eyes, no matter social status, race, sex, you're all equally my children. Okay, and Apostle Paul here, he wants Philemon to manifest Galatians 3.28. Even though he's a repentant slave, Paul's reminding him, your first and most essential relationship is as a brother of Christ. Okay, let's go to uh, verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you will receive me. Okay, so this part, receive him, this word means receive into one's family circle. Okay, it's not just, oh, open arms and open heart, but it's like, you're adopting this person into your family. Can you imagine? This is like total radical thinking. A slave to enter his master's family. And Paul goes on to say, receive him as you would receive me. And I think this is such like a beautiful picture that Paul is manifesting the gospel message right here. So this is a picture of what Jesus did for us believers. Jesus tells God the Father, receive him as you would receive me. Receive me now as you would receive our own son Jesus. So God's people are so identified with Jesus Christ that God receives us just as he receives his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Sorry, righteousness of God. <laughs> Through Christ's righteousness, we become righteous. Amen? Okay, continuing with verse 17. Receive him as you receive me. He's like, here, this uh, word partner, if you consider me your partner, okay, the word partner again is koinonia. Okay, so he's saying, if you consider me in fellowship with you, if we're in communion together, then koinonia, think of this slave as you would of me. Okay, Paul's inviting Philemon Onesimus, okay, also the entire house church, to think about the radical implications of them belonging together, okay, as the social status of master and slave, but as well as brothers believing in a community. Paul gives these five appeals to Philemon, Okay, he's like, okay, these reasons, one, two, three, four, five, I'm old and I'm in prison. He's safe. He's going down this list. You should forgive him and receive him. But it's not such a simple, simple situation. Okay, if it was just between Paul and Philemon, then maybe they could work something out. But it's complicated. There's great implications of what happens once Philemon decides what to do. Okay, remember, this is being read in like a, a public context. So Philemon's too easy on Onesimus. Okay, it could influence other slaves to also become Christian. Okay, and follow suit like Onesimus and influence their masters to treat them better. Okay, like Onesimus had with Philemon. Okay, on the other hand, if Philemon's too harsh, Okay, remember he's doing ministry in Colossae. Okay, people will see it and be like, mm, that dude is like no good. 
Okay, it's going to affect his ministry. So he's put in a pickle here. He's getting these like urges and appeals from Paul, but he's like, hmm, like what can I do? Like, what's going to happen? Is it going to go this way or is it going to go this way? Okay, the church is watching how Philemon is going to respond. Okay, and Paul's really putting Philemon in a strange situation. Okay, but lovingly, Paul provides a solution in the next verse. Okay, let's go to verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Okay, so Paul's saying, he's not suggesting, all right, Philemon, let's just sweep everything under the rug. Okay, all these crimes of him running away, he probably stole money from him to go to Rome as well. Okay, Paul's saying, I'll pay the debt. Okay, charge it to my account. Okay, put it on my tab, I'll pay it. And this ver- uh, language in Philemon 19 where he's saying, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Okay, this is, it sounds like a legal promissory note of that time. So he's like entering in like a little IOU in the letter. It's like, hey, here's my handwriting. Okay, I will assure you that I will pay this debt. And here, Paul's modeling the gospel again. Because love ultimately must pay a price. God does not save us by his love only, for though he loves the world, the world isn't saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, God in his holiness couldn't ignore the sin or the debt that we owe because God has to be faithful to fulfill his own law. And in the Old Testament, there's like all these laws and statutes, don't eat this, don't do that, if you do this, blah, 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 do the ceremony here and there. Okay, all these laws was to show not that God is picky and that God's merciless, but it was to show that we ourselves cannot fulfill these laws. It's impossible. Okay, every year at the appointed time in the Old Testament, the priest would go into the temple and offer a bird or a lamb as a sacrifice and pour the blood on the altar. It was a foreshadowing of the price that would need to be paid for our debt. The price was the blood of his one and only son. You know, theologians call this the doctrine of imputation. To impute means to put it on account. Okay, so when Jesus died for our sins, my sins were put into his account, and his account was now made mine. Okay, he's treated the way that I should be treated, and when I put my trust in Jesus and believe him as my only one and only Savior, now his righteousness gets put into my account. And because of this, God fully accepts us and adopts us into his family. The debt's been paid. No longer do you owe anything because he paid it in full. Okay, receive him. Receive Onesimus as you and me. Bring him into the family circle. Okay, Martin Luther said, all of us are Onesimuses. Okay, because here Paul's manifesting the gospel. Uh, the second part of 19, he ends it like, 
to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. <laughs> He's saying, it's not enough that I'm going to pay as that, by the way, you got saved through me, you know. <laughs> by the way, your salvation, I shared the gospel and now you're saved and we'll go to heaven. By the way. <laughs> oh, it sounds like a nagging like mom or something. Just enter, you know how they're adding the little jabs? Okay, we know that Paul's not like manipulative or anything, but I really, he's like, oh, but say of nothing, you know, you owe me even your own self. Okay, he's like, I'm the one that led you to salvation, by the way. Okay. Uh, verse 20. Yes, brothers, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Okay, so this word benefit is also another play on words here. Okay, it's the same root word as Onesimus. Okay, so I want some benefit from you and the Lord. I want some Onesimus from you and the Lord. Paul's thinking like, hey man, send them back. <laughs> I'm in prison. <laughs> you repair the relationship and send them back, okay? It's funny his play on words, right? Okay. Uh, per, uh, verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Okay, so there's a lot of speculation with this even more. Because some theologians think that even more is what was shared in 20, that Onesimus will come back and serve Paul. Okay, other theologians think, ah, this is just literal. Okay, he's talking about he will do even more love than he could imagine. Okay, because love forgives, restores, covers sins, and heals broken relationships. Okay, only the love of Christ has the power to perform this kind of reconciliation. Okay, and other scholars think that even more is like free him. Not just forgive and receive him, but free him. Okay, but if you read the Pauline letters, Paul never outright condemns slavery. He never says it's wrong or it's bad. Okay, he gives guidelines for how slaves should respond to their master. Now this is interesting because in the American Civil War, okay, there was like so many deaths because they're fighting over slavery, right? Or slavery not right, right? But the North and the South, they both use the Bible to prove their case. Okay, they'll be like, no, 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 do you see the Bible here? You know, Paul never actually condemns slavery. If slavery is so wrong, then how come Jesus or the apostles don't go against it? Okay, and the other people are saying, no, look at the context. You have to look at the deep-rooted that God, you know? So they, both sides were like, oh, you, let's use the Bible for our benefit. Okay, so if slavery was so wrong, how come Apostle Paul or Jesus doesn't address this? Now, a great explanation is given by the commentator, commentator Alexander McLaren. Okay, so he's talking about Christianity and the message. First, the message of Christianity is primarily to individuals and only secondary to society. It leaves the units whom it has influence to influence the mass. Second, it acts on spiritual and moral sentiment and only afterwards and consequently on deeds or institutions. Third, it hates violence and trusts wholly to enlightened conscience. So it meddles directly with no political or social arrangement, but lays down principles which will profoundly affect these and leads them to soak into the general mind. 
Okay, if the early Christians began a campaign against slavery, they would have totally been crushed by the opposition. Because it's not like it was like a democracy like we live in today. Okay, Christians in the first century had no power to bring any kind of change in, t- in terms of political or social things. So McLaren says it's primarily to the individual, primarily to the individual, and secondary to society, okay, meaning that the message of Christianity is an individual, okay, inside-out work. Okay, the gospel message has to transform our sinful hearts first. As we become transformed, the change comes from within, and the Bible calls Christians the salt and the light of the earth. Okay, so as each of us encounter the gospel day in and day out, we change from the inside, then the individual people now influence the society around them. Okay, God did this often in the Bible. Okay, he raised up people with his heart and his spirit to influence and change culture. Okay, think about Joseph in Egypt, okay, Daniel in Babylon, or Queen Esther in Persia. Okay, the tricky thing comes is when government tries to instill law to change people's hearts. Okay, now I'm not like anti, what is it, what is it, like a no government or nothing like that, okay, but when, when government set laws to try to govern heart, it never works. Okay, take for instance abortion, right? Abortion in America before was illegal, but tons of women uh, did it anyway, and many of them died in the process, right? Now, abortion is legal, okay, they changed this, okay, the government's trying to institute these things, but that can never, law can never be used to change the individual heart, okay? The heart has to be changed by the gospel, where you now see the unborn, the slave, the oppressed, now as brothers in Christ instead of, you know, mere material. You think of like human trafficking is the same thing, right? It's fueled by pornography because it's making women not like real people. Okay, but what the gospel does is it attacks the heart and the wrong thinking of the worldly perspective and is trying to bring a shift as a gospel perspective. Now, even then, even after it took centuries for slavery to end. Now think of how difficult it was for people to overcome slavery in America and England. And these are two nations that had the gospel for hundreds of years. Okay, but the gospel helped prepare the way. Okay, even the civil rights movement in Africa in America, sorry, or apartheid in South Africa. It was a battle. You know, apartheid only happened like in the 90s. Okay, me and Molly would like talk about that. That's crazy, man. Up to then, everything was separate. Okay. Think about how hard it is to instill this. It was so long ago. It was difficult to win this battle in the current 19th and 20th century. How much more of a struggle would have been like back then? Okay, let's go to our final greetings. Epoch. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, I mentioned that Epaphras was probably the pastor of the church, that he left to go serve Rome, and then probably, what was that guy's name? Archippus was the fill-in. Okay, and the final greetings are pretty normal, right? But if you look at Philemon, 
It's like kind of a random book. It's like shoved in between, like after all the T's, before Hebrews, it's so short. Out of all the letters, it's addressed to a single person. It just seems so random. Like why was this part of, why was it canonized in scripture? Like it's the only letter addressed to a single recipient, like a main recipient. Now, although we can't be for certain, okay, Orthodox Church tradition tells us that Onesimus served Christ faithfully through his life and later became the bishop of the church of Ephesus after Timothy's death. Isn't that crazy? Okay, because back then, churches didn't meet like in a big building. Jews had their synagogues and people all met in churches. So there was like a bunch of tiny little house churches everywhere. And then over all the churches is like a bishop. He's like a leader who kind of looks over. Okay, so the church tradition tells us that this Onesimus was a bishop of the church of Ephesus after Timothy's death. I think that's so crazy. The slave turned bishop okay, was later as a prisoner sent back to Rome okay, where he testified before his judge Tertullus. <laughs> There's so many hard names here. And then Onesimus was condemned to death by stoning and afterwards his corpse was beheaded in AD 109. I'm, you know, we don't actually know whether Philemon listened to the instructions of Apostle Paul, right? But we can, we can kind of take a guess like, wow, maybe he did. He really did embrace him. He went against the cultural norm. And now Onesimus is fully launched into his Ministry for the gospel. I think that's so crazy, right? The gospel message at the very heart, it brings into our heart the worthiness of who we are in Jesus Christ. It's such a beautiful message. It's starting from a place of forgiveness where it doesn't matter what you did in your past, you're covered by the righteousness and the blood of Jesus into his family. Now, I know that as a community... We've been praying, right? And we've been praying, you know, we talk about, oh, we planted this church here in Busan in 2012 because we're believing in the revival of Korea and that Busan is going to be the starting point for revival, right? There's a quote from Robert Lyardson. <laughs> All these names, okay? Revival must be in your heart before it comes into the earth. Each revival has nothing to do with the last one, but it has everything to do with the individual that brings it. You know, when you study church history and you study the history of the revivals, oftentimes it came through one person. Okay, the call went forth, the grace goes forth, but there's something in us that God gives us free will, so there's a partnership that needs to happen. Okay, and this is such a beautiful message of reconciliation and forgiveness of how to relate to brother on brother going on, you know, race or social status or anything. Because in the end, revival starts with people. Okay, we have to take this message, the gospel message, apply it to our hearts daily, okay, that we can be transformed that we can possibly be like Onesimus and continue and be able to do all that God's called us to do. 
Tiffany, can you come up? Okay, I want us to just take a time and kind of respond to the message. And, you know, it's kind of like Apostle Paul. It can't be done in compulsion. It can't be done by command. Okay, but let us kind of come together and offer our hearts to the Lord. Okay, and let us ask the Holy Spirit. Okay, Holy Spirit, is there any unforgiveness in my heart? Okay, is there any area where I I haven't forgiven? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's just uh, take a time to close our eyes and quiet our souls. And just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, is there anyone that I haven't forgiven? You, you know, like when you think of somebody or or sometimes the Holy Spirit will remind you, you feel this like, ugh, like I don't want to think about that. That's uncomfortable. That's awkward. Okay. Okay. Oftentimes that's the Holy Spirit nudging. And just like Onesimus had like a financial debt, oftentimes forgiveness has to be seen in the same way. It's not an easy thing. It's not a worldly thing. And mind you, there's plenty of, I'm sure there's plenty of traumatic stories. It's not an easy thing. Plenty of abuse or things that you've gone through that were difficult. But I think the parable of the, the, what is it, the older son and the younger son is like such a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness. It's not that you sweep it under the rug. It's that Jesus paid the price and that he's there with you. He feels the pain. It's not like he's just like, don't feel the pain. It's Jesus is with you in the pain. But in forgiveness, what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, I don't want to carry this dead anymore. Lord, this is too heavy. This burden is too heavy. I can't carry it. Forgiveness is saying, I'm giving this debt over to you, God. God, this person hurt me. They betrayed me. They talked behind my back. They slandered me. Okay, you lay that down at the foot of the cross and you say, Lord, this is, this is not my debt. It's forgiveness is saying, this offense is real and, and God feels it and he knows the pain but in comparison to my debt is so little it's laying it down and releasing it forgiving, letting go and saying I release them Lord I forgive them Lord because you forgave me I want us just to take some time and just quiet ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit. And, it, you know, forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not like once you forgive someone, you're all of a sudden going to feel better. Because healing is a process and forgiveness is a process. But it's just first laying it down, releasing the debt that's owed to you. Okay, so let's just take this time. And we'll ask the Holy Spirit to move. <laughs> 